Well, you've made it to lunchtime, and now I have the, the unenviable position to uh, go after lunch when everybody's in a food coma. And Tim has given us all the points on how not to preach, and so I'm having to like totally rewrite my sermon, just kidding, so that I can make sure that I don't fail, and uh, we stand in grace. As I, uh, as I look at you, and I, I prayed or said this earlier, um, you might not feel it, but it's a reality. You being here is an expression of humility. That you would be willing to say, I am needy, there's something that I there's something I need to grow in, is an exercise of humility. And here's the promise. God gives grace to the humble. So my, it's exactly right. So my hope in this moment is not in my words. My hope in this moment is not that you'll stay awake. If you need to take a nap, more power to you. My hope in this moment is that I believe Christ is going to work in his word and that he loves you. And that he is going to give grace to you in this moment. And I don't know what that is. But the great thing is I get to travel around and now I get to stand here. Is I know that he has got a word for you today. Of great grace in this moment. So I just want to read a passage that we're going to look at. It's one verse. Romans 15, 13. I want to read it. And then I want to pray. And then we'll dive in. Romans 15, 13. The Word of God says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, awaken us physically, awaken us spiritually. May there be a remarkable sense that when this is finished, we were able to look back and say, here's the word you had for me today, for my family, for my church. Father, I just ask that we are shown your son, and there's this overwhelming sense of our security in Christ, of your love for us. I do pray that this verse right here would happen. Give us hope. Fill us with joy and peace by raising the waters of our faith so that day by day we experience the ever-flowing power and abundant mercy of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It depends on what season you're in, on whether you can agree with this statement, but being a pastor is a gift. It is a gift. It's a wonderful thing. It's a gift to be able to have the privilege to be in people's lives in some of their hardest times. It's a privilege to be trusted with people's journeys. It's a privilege to watch lives transformed. I was just sharing and with my group over here as we were praying, I got to baptize my 18-year-old son on Sunday. I got four kids, and to watch my 18-year-old, who we thought was going to be one of the hardest, most rebellious, to, to watch how God 
despite his parents, to watch how God has taken the gospel and rooted it in his soul. We baptized on an eight-foot horse trough, and we're just outside, and to watch him testify to the goodness of Christ in his 18-year-old way, and to, it's an amazing gift. And to see that in other people's lives, it's a privilege like none other. To watch, to have the privilege to prepare and to be able to preach and that God can take crooked sticks like us and actually draw straight lines and change lives, like it is a privilege. And we need to just sit back sometimes and just to thank God for what we get to do week in and week out. Care for people, love on people, shepherd people. Watch community develop. Now, I know that every time I say a good thing, your mind is, zip, I can tell you one thing that's the opposite of that. The footnotes just come and come and come, but I just pray, like, you're able to see what a gift it is that you have been gifted and called to shepherd the people of God. But on a dime, unpredictably, that hope, that encouragement can take a left turn just out of nowhere. <laughs> How, why in the world can, I mean, like, Sunday for me was just an amazing Sunday. Like, we had a fellowship outside. We had tons of people. I had I'd been working on sharing the gospel with many of my neighbors, and some of them came to church on Sunday to be a part of this fellowship that we had after church. It's just like, you know, years and years of laboring and to watch some families come. You know, it's just like, yes, you know, it's just like, ever. and then I go to bed. I'm thankful. And I wake up, and I am a wreck in my heart. Where did that come from? Why is that? Why am I anxious? It's my day off on Mondays. Like, what is going on? I hate it when people ask me this question. It's just like, oh, how's church? <laughs> How do you answer that? You know, I, I've defaulted to Charles Dickens. You know, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. Because, like, I can tell you great grace and I can tell you great drama. And it's just, you know, it's just how life and ministry is. But why is that even the case in our own souls? One moment it can be the best of times and the next moment it can feel like the worst of times. And we are a train wreck. Hope in ministry. Where do we find hope in the midst of those discouraging times? Because sometimes I've, I want to find hope in rehearsing all of those wonderful things, right? But usually when you're discouraged, those wonderful things are not easy to be found. What's easy to be found is your inadequacies, your failed speech, the criticism that you received, the regrets of the past, the shame of personal sin. It's just a mountain. And as much as you want to see differently, you can't. Where do you find hope in ministry when you have a discouraged heart and you want to give up? When you have a covetous heart and you really want somebody else's ministry? You're not satisfied with what God has given you. When you have a weary heart and you're just like, I don't know if I can keep going. When church might seem to be doing well, but home is really hard. Marriage is difficult. Your best friend feels distant or sometimes can feel against you or you against her. 
Despairing hearts many times can't see past the pain of life. Where do we find hope in ministry? How can we treasure Christ in the midst of hard days? Why are joy and peace so elusive? Why can I be joyful one moment and not the next? Why am I like that? I literally asked Jesus that. Like, why? I don't understand. Why is it not easier for me to prepare a sermon? Why does my brain go everywhere and I struggle to organize? Why am I so self-condemning after I finish a sermon? Why do I replay things in my mind over and over? Why do I not have joy? Where's my hope? These are things that can happen. They don't happen all the time, but they can happen. And I know we've all asked these questions. And then you run into Romans 15. And Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with not just some, but all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. <laughs> the hope in ministry is obviously, we know it mentally, is to look to the God of hope. That is, the God in whom we all hope for salvation. That is, the God who gives hope. It's the God who is worthy of hope. It's the God that we set our hope on Him rather than the fleeting pleasures of riches. It's the God who satisfies. But it's this God who promises that He can, has in Jesus, brought about peace and joy. And I just want to spend a little bit of a moment to say, how do we get there? How do we go from the discouraged heart to the hopeful, joyful, peaceful heart? How do we get there? Well, I'll tell you a little bit of my journey. I was given a sabbatical in uh, 2016. And my sabbatical journey was... I, I, I talked to one pastor, and he looked at my plan for a sabbatical, and he says, bro, you look like you're trying to plant a church. Like, you need to, like, slow down. And, like, I had, like, ten goals. You know, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to do all. And he was like, why don't you pick this one thing and go there? And I just thought, I totally disregarded his counsel. I thought he was foolish, and I'm just going to go after it. But I tell you what ended up happening. I went after one thing. Because when I started that one journey... My soul was so wrecked, I couldn't go anywhere else. And this was my journey. What is rest, and why don't I have it? What is rest, and why don't I have it? Why am I an anxious mess? Why do I get frustrated and bothered at home? Why do I roll my eyes at my spouse? Why do I snap at my kids? Why? I crave freedom from responsibility, and yet even when I don't seem to have responsibility, I struggle to find contentment. No matter how many days off I take, it's still a struggle. Well, I knew I had a problem when I'm on sabbatical. We prayed that God would provide us a space that we could be in for an extended amount of time. So God gave us the holy hookup. I mean... 
My wife is from the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. She grew up in Maryville. That's how you say it when you're from there, V-U-L, you know, Maryville. And so, not Maryville. So she grew up around there, and we were at the base of the Smoky Mountains, and the holy hookup was we got a house on like 50 to 70 acres at the foot of the Smoky Mountains, and it was $300 for the month. We paid utilities. So I was just like, okay, the Lord did that. We, we could not have crafted that journey, but you got that first picture by chance, bro? Okay, so this was at the house. So picture this setting. I'm here in the morning, and my wife and I, we fought to care for each other by giving each other extended days away in this sabbatical time. So this was my day away. I literally was not anxious about the church because I had been away from the church long enough to kind of detach a little bit. And I had no kids' responsibilities. I had no marital responsibilities. It was just, Sean, your day away, do what you wish. So I wasn't anxious about the church, didn't have any of these responsibilities, and I'm sitting looking at this, and I'm anxious. What's that? I got what word. I'll tell you what that is. It's called stupid. That's me. Like, what, what leads you to do that? To sit and look at that, and all you can think is about anxiety in your heart. What's the anxiety? I'm not producing. I don't know what is next. There was an identity crisis. Where is my significance? I'm anxious. Why can't I rest? When one of the most beautiful views in all of God's creation is in front of your eyes, why can't you rest? And then this is when God began to open my eyes. That there are certain rests that vacations can't solve. No amount of time on the couch or in front of the TV or playing music or biking or sleep can solve it. In a sermon from Tim Keller, he quotes a woman named Judith Shulevist. And she was talking about, as a Jewish woman, the Sabbath. And she used a phrase called, the rest under the rest. And that's what it was. It was not just physical rest that I needed. It was something underneath that rest. It was the rest under the rest that I was needing. There's a rest, not first of the body, but of the soul that every person is longing for. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he says, it's this sweet, inward, quiet, gracious disposition of the Spirit that delights in God's wise and fatherly care. It's this sense of peace. You hear that word from our text. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I believe this idea of rest has got underneath it these pillars of joy and peace. And I'm asking myself, why don't I have rest? Why don't I have joy? Why don't I have peace? Why is it so elusive? But what I realized is that a happy soul, a restful soul, it's not predicated upon good circumstances, but on a good God. A restful soul is not predicated upon good circumstances, but on a good God. 
What is this rest we are longing for? It is joy and peace. It's not just the absence of anger, it's the presence of delight. Joy is not just the absence of anger, it's the presence of delight. And peace is not just the absence of anxiety, it's the presence of contentment, or satisfaction. This is when God met me with this idea. Rest is not a place. Rest is a person. Rest is a person. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is not going to be found with the late night TV show, not against those things. Rest is not ultimately going to be found in just eating good food or in an extended vacation. Those are gifts from God. He's given us everything to enjoy, but to enjoy through the lenses of enjoying Him. Rest is not a place. Rest is a person. Rest is not bound up in perfect conditions, but it's bound up in me knowing a perfect Savior, Christ. This is when I remember. Here's how I started out my sabbatical. I I stopped. um, I went to a hotel in my city. It's kind of weird because your house is kind of around the corner. But I went to a hotel in my city, and it was just like about 36 hours. And I was told to kind of get away and just do some things that you don't normally do. Like, you know, it's okay to, to watch a movie or kind of go riding your bike around downtown or eat some good food. And so that was my plan. But my first plan was like, okay, and honestly, it felt more like a box to check. It was like, okay, but you've got to start with Jesus, right? Like, you can't, that's what good Christians do. they got to start with Jesus. And then they can go do this other stuff. So... I tell you, it was really just felt more perfunctory. It felt more like the checking of the box. And so I sat there and I never left. I was on my knees and I remember reading the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. Here's what I read, Acts 3, 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Tim Keller uses this phrase. He says, it's not that we need new information. It's when information becomes new. I knew this verse. I could quote this verse. I'd read through Acts before. But you sit there and it says, repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you see it? Do you see the promise for refreshment? That was my journey. That was my desire How do I find this joy and peace that's so elusive? Do you see it there in the text? It's Acts 3.19. It says this. There it was. The inescapable truth that there is an interwoven, unbreakable bond between repentance and rest. If there isn't repentance, there isn't rest. I never saw that in my heart until that moment, but it makes sense, doesn't it? Sin disturbs rest. It does. You know it does. Some of you struggle with that even now. It's become a way of life. Secrecy. 
a way to live in public, but living differently in private. The clearing of history, the looking at things late at night. The happy at church, the angry at home. Happy on the outside, bitter on the inside, teaching on purity at church, walking in impurity at home. It's exhausting. It's meant to be. We were designed for something so much better. And yet you and I, we can fall prey to it. You need to remember this. I have to all the time. Before you're ever a pastor, you are a person. You're not a position. You're someone made in the image of God who is in desperate need of the grace of Christ. Just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you are beyond sin. And When you walk in that double life, it is exhausting. And you wonder why you don't have refreshment. Dear friends, I hold out to you. There is another way to live, and it can start now. It can start now. You don't have to be resigned to this. Because there is a God. There is a God who sent His Son to die in our place and rose from the grave to tell you this very thing. The sin that you're battling with is not greater than Christ. When God is on the scene, there is hope. That's where this verse begins. May the God of hope. There's hope because Christ has come. Sin, Satan, and death have been defeated. You can preach it, but do you preach it here? You have just resigned yourself. This is the way it's got to be. And I'm telling you, no. But without repentance, you won't find rest. You won't find rest. You'll strive and you'll strive and you'll strive. But the whole point of the gospel is your striving is not enough. If I've heard it once, I've heard it ten times today, it is receiving the love of God for you. Oh, dear friends, sin is disrupting our souls. And the path to rest is through repentance. And honestly, for some of us, repentance is just a negative word. Like, we don't like to talk about it or think about it. Because in its best clothing, it's I've messed up again. In our weakest moments, it's me sharing with God or someone else one more way that I've blown it. There's a problem with that view of repentance. Jesus is nowhere to be found in it. I've blown it. I've messed up. I'm gross. All those can be true. You can be wrong and still, as Tim and I have talked, you can be wrong and still be loved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel we preach. I just pray that God might use broken people like me and these other brothers just to be like, preach it to yourself. Jesus makes repentance sweet because he has the shoulder strong enough to bear it. Repentance means coming to the God of hope, not made up, but honest and raw and bare. Paul Miller in his book, The J-Curve, he talks about this idea that 
before we can ever experience the joy of the resurrection, there has to be a death. In the letter J, there's the going down and then the coming up. There has to be a death. There has to be repentance. There has to be this expression of, I'm needy, you're not. Come, come, come. A resurrection of life that brings joy and peace. Now, honestly, it's a little interesting how I'm talking. I don't know if you're still able to track. But the way I'm talking, it almost sounds like you're a bunch of unbelievers and I'm preaching the gospel to you for the first time. And it's like, it's like I'm talking about you're a sinner in need of a Savior, right? And you've got to repent of your sins in order to have them blotted out and find refreshment. This is the way it works for me. Like, I heard the gospel, and for me the gospel was a book that you read, and then you put it on the shelf never to visit it again. It was revolutionary to me when I realized that the gospel was not knowledge to obtain and say I've accomplished it and put it over here, but it was something to apply day in and day out, moment by moment by moment into my life. So we're preaching through the book of Romans at our church. Finally, after like, I guess we started in 2005, so what's this make us, 18, 17, I don't know, do the math, years. And so we're in the book of Romans, we're in chapter 10 right now, and so I'm preaching on chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Anybody know the Romans road? Yeah, come on, you know it. Yeah, it's the verse that we talk about in terms of getting unbelievers to faith in Jesus. If you confess with your mouth, what? That's a lame excuse for a preaching group, okay? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be what? Saved. That's right. That's right. You ever read verse 10? For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's interesting. These verbs in verse 10 are present tense. Like it's something that's supposed to keep happening. It's supposed to Keep believing. You're supposed to keep confessing. There's two things you need to take away from this. Here's one. Confession is not just for a new life. It's for a continued life in Christ. So I'm mowing my yard on a Saturday. While I'm mowing, I'm literally anxious. Yeah, you catch a theme. I've got some fear issues. I'm anxious about all the things that I have to do in my day, and I'm like, I don't know how I've got to get it done. So my goal on Saturdays is that I help make the rest of my family's day a Sabbath rest day, a day that they can get away and they can just, you know, work hard six, rest hard one. We, we try to work that rhythm into our family's life, and so I'm like, I'm working hard on Saturdays to help give them the time off. My day off is on Mondays, and so that's how we've sought to do it. I don't work at the church on Saturdays, but boy, I'm working hard to make everybody else's life a joy on Saturdays. So Saturday, I also do a lawn business. I'm mowing like 11 to 12 yards in my neighborhood, okay? 
started off with my oldest son starting his own business called Big Bro Moco. He named it. And so I was like helping him with this mowing business. And then all of a sudden, like he bails and now I've got this mowing business. So um, and now every year they just keep coming back to me. It's like, hey, you going to mow my yard? And I just like, I guess so. But it's been great. I've gotten to know a lot of neighbors. And so I'm mowing and I'm just like, how in the world am I going to get all this stuff done? As your kids get older, they got thousands of places to go. And I've got two that are drivers and two that are not. And I'm just trying to coordinate. How can I get my wife some time away? And literally all is just running through my head. And I'm just like, I cannot get this all done. So I'm push mowing my parents' uh, yard because my mom and dad are not feeling well. And so I'm push mowing their yard and I'm just, I can't get it done. Can't get it done. So I'm push mowing. And here's what comes to mind. Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if I'm looking at these words, like it's not just a one-time gig. It's something that I do over and over. So here's what I'm doing. I'm mowing the yard, and I said, God, I confess that you are Lord and I am not. Here's what that means. I've tried to orchestrate my whole day, and I have not once stopped and said, God, what might you want me to do today? Because here's what I know. I can have hope each and every day that God is going to supply me with everything I need to do what he's called me to do that day. But I've created an agenda that I'm not sure six people could accomplish. But I think if I just work a little harder, grip a little tighter, I can get it all done. Who's comp- like, this is why I'm anxious at times, right? I'm leaning on me. But what did I do? I confessed the gospel while I'm push mowing. A gospel that we think is for just the unbelievers. And I'm saying the scriptures bear witness that it's for me every single day. I'm confessing Jesus, your Lord. And I believe... I believe, God, that you raised your son from the dead and nothing is too powerful for you. Help me to rest there. The second thing is interesting is like, I'm not just that passage. You don't just confess your sin. You're actually confessing faith, confessing what you believe to be true. Sometimes we get this whole idea of biblical change so backwards. The phrase we use in our church is, that biblical change is more about who you pursue than what you avoid. And I'm afraid many of us, we think about biblical change as stop doing this. And therefore confession is, oh God, I have done this wrong thing. But biblical change in the scriptures is more about who you pursue. Confessing Jesus your Lord. You've been raised from the dead. You can change me. I trust you. This is the journey of biblical change. It's more about receiving than doing. And so, now, Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Why did I just seem to go on some type of rabbit trail on Romans 10 and push mowing, you might ask? Because in Romans 15, verse 13, the God of hope, filling you with all joy and peace, 
has a means. How do we get joy and peace? It's in believing. Not just a one-time moment, but an ongoing, present tense verb, continual, I've got to keep believing. I've got to keep rehearsing. I've got to keep telling myself, Jesus is Lord, raised from the dead. I agree with John Calvin as he talks about this verse, that this verse is Paul praying. He does this earlier in chapter 15. He does this throughout the book where he just is like stopping and praying. May you, the God of hope, fill them with all joy and peace in believing. It's, it's that general sentiment. So what are we supposed to keep believing? I just got four quick phrases I want to leave with you. What are we supposed to keep believing in order that joy and peace rise up in our hearts? One, He is with you. Two, He's gone before you. Three, He is in you. Four, He goes ahead of you. I have to have some handles when it comes to my anxious, crazy, turn on a dime, kind of up and down heart. And sometimes these spatial images are helpful for me. He is with me. He has gone before me. He is ahead of me. He is in me. These are ways that I think we can rehearse the gospel. We can rehearse that we, I believe you're with me. I believe that you have finished everything that needed to be finished. You've gone before me. I believe that you're inside of me. I believe that you go ahead of me. And as we rehearse that, gospel waters of joy and peace, they rise in the heart. So this idea of He is with you, the great news is being the third talk, they've already said it all, right? I mean, it's just like, I feel like as I was listening, I was just like, I'm, i got to hit repeat, you know? It's just like, hey, you hear that on that, what they said? You hear what? Okay, this is great. I don't need to say anything. And you're probably like, okay, I wish you would not say anything more. I'm tired. No, but He is with you. I just want to leave you with this one thing. He is with you, so sit with Him. Sit with Him. He is with you, so sit with Him. That's why I brought up the fact that this is a prayer. The pattern of Paul was regularly praying. You know, Romans 12, it says, Rejoice in tri tribulation, be patient, patient in affliction, be constant in prayer. This is how Paul lived his life, just in and out of praying, in and out of sitting with Jesus. He is praying because he knows it's his only hope. He is desperate and God is not. Paul is lacking and God is not. We know this, we can say it, but why, why do we struggle to just be still? Because of all the things that we've heard before, we don't feel significant, worthy, or valued if we aren't in constant motion. There is no more important thing than to sit with Jesus, to come boldly with all of your pain and all of your anxiety and just acknowledge your struggle and sit with Jesus and say, I need you. Come, come, Lord Jesus, come.
So I've, I've read a book called The Emotionally Healthy Pastor by Peter Cesaro. I don't recommend everything in the book, but there's some really helpful gems in the book. And one of them was a practice where he stops in the middle of his day to pray. And so I have set an alarm. And I don't know if you heard when I came up here, my alarm goes off. goes off every day at 101. Sometimes it's at awkward moments like it was before. Every day at 101. You'll hear my phone go off. My kids will say, is it 101? <laughs> 101. You know, just, okay. Why 101? I don't know. Okay. There's a guy that said that a guy encouraged him to set an alarm for 101, so that's what I did. What, it, what do I do? Because I could literally go through an entire day at times and look back and realize I wasn't very prayerful. I wasn't very still. I was quite a bit anxious, or I was really leaning on my own strength. And to stop in the middle of the day, and usually my default is to the Lord's Prayer, and this is genuinely what I sit down to do and allow the Spirit of God to take my heart after that. It's, my Father who is in heaven, I'm your child. You are my Father. Make me indifferent to my will that I might say, not my will, but yours be done. And then I say, I acknowledge that you are here. You're present right now with me. I want to sit and listen. And I try to sit for one minute or two in silence. In the middle of a crazy day. And I can't tell you how many times the Lord has met me, quieted my soul, granted encouragement, given wisdom, caused hope to rise in my heart when I was struggling because I just acknowledged He's here and He's for me as a father is for a child. And He loves me and I go not in my own strength but in His just encourage you when we are continuing to believe the gospel so that joy and peace well up and that we are hopeful people I want you to believe constantly that he's with you and that you will stop and sit still <laughs> one other principle I have there is that whenever you're ready to stop this is my morning devotions you know you've sat there you've read your mind's so distracted you just want to quit sometimes I usually have a five-minute rule Whenever you're ready to quit and throw in the towel, give it five more minutes. Just give it five more minutes. Because usually what happens when you push through that wall, it's like a runner's wall. If you've ever run and you're like, I don't want to run anymore. And then all of a sudden, if you keep running, then all of a sudden, oh, hey, I got a little more energy now. It's spiritually the same way. I just encourage you like, I'm ready to throw in the towel. I'm ready to be done. Five more minutes. Because he's with you. And he's for you. The other thing is not only is he with you, but he has gone before you. And you can trust his finished work. You can trust his finished work. I tell you, it was 2018. We were 13 years in. We'd had our ups and downs like any pastoral ministry had, but we were doing pretty well. In 2018, it really felt like the bottom fell out. There were some staff struggles in our church, accusations brought against me, 
deeply painful, close friend in an eldership pipeline. And I can tell you that the reason Romans 15, 13 is so, imp- so precious to me was that it was when I was at my lowest. I went to a Starbucks and I sat there from 9.30 in the morning until like 3 in the afternoon looking at Romans 15, 13. And the context of Romans 15 has, an allu- has a quote from Psalm 69. And brothers and sisters, I was in depression. For over nine months, I battled with significant depression. And I'm sitting there in that Starbucks, and I read these words from Psalm 69. Remember, they're quoted in Romans 15. It says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. That described my emotional state. Felt like I was crying and crying and crying and to, to the point my throat was raw. I felt like that I could barely get my head above water emotionally and things were just overwhelming. I don't know if you've ever been there. I hope not. But if you have, I want you to hear the tide will not always recede, as Charles Spurgeon says. It will come back in. There's hope when you are struggling in the dark night of the soul. But here's what I felt in that moment in verse 4 of Psalm 69. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. What I did not do must I now confess that I did. That's the way I felt. It was so painful. And then the passage takes a really weird turn. The psalmist is in despair. He's feeling wrongly accused. The things that are being brought about him are not true. And then you got the next verse. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. You might not be guilty of this, but you're guilty. Is that really the way to to encourage my depressed heart? Jesus said, yeah, it was. Because I can tell you, I usually struggle to tell anything about the journey of 2018 and 2019. Because here's my fear. If I describe it in one way, I might become the hero. If I describe it in another way, I might not be able to articulate it clearly, so here's what I say now. I will never paint the picture rightly of how bad these actions were against me and how painful the betrayal and attacks were. Then I say, I will never also be able to explain to you how deep the sadness and depression was in those days for me. But I also say, 
I will never be able to explain to you how much growth was needed in my own heart and how much I needed to improve in and how much I needed to repent of. And all of that needs to just be held out there. Dear friends, you, you have been criticized, some of it wrong, some of it right. What do you do? What do you do? Because I tell you, that'll eat away at your joy and peace. That'll erode your hope. What do you do? Well, I tell you what I did wrong. It was a crisis of righteousness. I said, if this is what is going to be said about me, I'll show you I'm not that. I'll be perfect. And so for four to five months, I fought to be perfect. Just guess how that went. It's not successful. Or Jesus didn't need to come. But it was a crisis of righteousness for me. I really fought hard to be better than I was. To prove anybody who thought anything negative about me to prove them wrong. But here's what I needed. I needed to rehearse what Romans 10 continues to say. That there is a Lord, the Lord of Lords, who is bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Here's what I needed to rehearse. Taking this list from Dane Ortland's book, Deeper, highly recommend it. One of the best books I've ever read on sanctification and growing in grace. Dane Ortland's book, Deeper. I've modified it and adjusted it. Remember, Romans 15 says you will find joy and peace if you continue to believe. If you just keep trusting the promises. Here's what I had to trust in that moment. I am justified in Christ. I am declared not guilty, and I'm no longer condemned. Even if I were guilty of everything that was said about me, and I wasn't, but even if I was, by faith in Christ alone, He has gone before me. He paid for it all. He was the righteousness that I could not be. And therefore, I stand not on my own, but I stand on His righteousness. What do we keep rehearsing? I just, I'm going to wash you with it real quickly. We are not only justified, we are sanctified, which means we're marked now by love, no longer by defilement. We are not only justified and sanctified, but we are adopted. It's a family metaphor. We're no longer orphaned, but we are embraced by the Father. We are loved, fought for, protected. We are also reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. It's a relational metaphor. I am now fully accepted by grace, not because of my ability, but because of what He has done before me. Accepted, no longer rejected. I'm washed. That means I've been cleansed in Christ's blood. I'm no longer dirty before the Lord. I'm redeemed. It's the slave market metaphor. I'm bought out of bondage and I'm no longer enslaved. I'm purchased, which means Jesus paid for all my sin completely. No longer in debt. I've been liberated. That is, I'm set free. I'm no longer in prison. I have new birth, which means I'm given new life. I've been awakened to new affections and new desires. I'm illuminated. That means I have new eyes and new ears and new hearts and no longer blind. Here's where our passage goes. I've been given peace. 
Fear is dispelled at Calvary. Peace is mine, not in a circumstance, but in a person. No longer captive to fear. Joy. Gladness is now a gift. Satisfaction is possible in Christ. I'm no longer shackled by despair. Resurrection. Death is defeated. And I walk in new life. Dear friends, keep believing. He's with you. He's gone before you. He's finished it. Now this joy and peace thing, I just, if my story hasn't been evident, it's not a light switch. It's not like, I trust that Jesus is Lord. Woo! I'm happy. I trust that Jesus is Lord. My heart's at peace. It's more akin to how you like fill up a kiddie pool. I don't know if you ever filled up a kiddie pool before, but like you fill it up and then the kids can't wait until it's full with water so they jump in. And then when they jump in, they start kicking all the water out. I just leave the hose in there so it keeps filling up. And they're just playing and splashing and all the water goes out. And I mean, this is me. Like God is constantly pouring in his love and his affection and reminding me of all that he's done. And I'm kicking out all the water that I need to fully enjoy this. But he just keeps supplying and keeps supplying. The hose is in there. The water's rising. And then imperceptibly, what my kids don't realize is that the waters have risen up to the very top. And here's where then I, I, like, I get mindful of like, okay, I don't want to waste a water bill, you know. So kids, you know, you're just going to, I'm going to shut off the spigot and you're just going to play in the pool. God doesn't have that fear, okay. He just keeps it in there and it goes to overflowing because all of the images in the Bible are God's love overflowing and love for us. He fills our cup to overflowing. And so his supply does not stop no matter how much we're kicking out all this stuff that's in the pool He's still supplying us with what we need. He's still supplying us with what we need. He is with us. He has gone before us. And the beauty of the gospel is Romans 8, 11, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of us. In the Old Testament, when you look at two images of a river and an ocean, oceans and seas are images of condemnation. But when you look at rivers in the Old Testament, it's an image of life. It's an image of life. And I don't know if you've read Psalm 1. It says, if you delight in the law of the Lord day and night, you'll be like a tree, what? Planted by streams of water. Can we put up the next image here? Okay, tree, stream of water. Brief test. Is the water... Giving to the tree or the tree giving to the water? Water is giving to the tree. So what's the tree's role? To receive. It's to receive. Why? Because in the New Testament, Jesus says, Come to me. You'll never thirst again. And in you will spring up wells of water to eternal life. And it says, and this he said about the Spirit of God. When we see water imagery, tree planted by streams of water, we're meant to think about the indwelling power of the Spirit of God constantly filling us up to overflowing. And then, if you'll go to the next picture, this is how we feel though, right? 
We don't feel like that luscious tree. We feel bifurcated. Like sometimes in some of our life, we got joy and it's growing fruit. And the other side, you know, we talk about being spiritually dry, dead on the other side. This is how we feel. And so then we ask ourselves, why do we feel so back and forth? Why do we feel so conflicted? Next picture. It's because this is our image of the river of God. We either say, our sin is too great, God will not supply us, or we say, deep down, God is not supplying us. The, the river is not rushing to supply our needs. But this is the biblical image. Next picture. This is the biblical image of the Spirit of God. He is the river of rushing waters welling up within us, not short of supply at all, overflowing in its banks to constantly give to us. And our role is to be the tree by streams of water that receives the love of God for us. You want to know how joy and peace rise continually to overflowing in your life? Sometimes not a light switch, but over time it's when you continue to believe that He is with you, He's gone before you, and He is inside of you. Like a mighty rushing river, supplying you with everything you need. It was said of Hudson Taylor, one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the Christian church, who had gone to inward China. It said that when people looked at his life, one guy said he was not a happy man. And then something happened in his life. And you know what he attributed it to? He attributed it to this one fact. He began to see that God was with him and always supplying him with everything he needed to face whatever he faced. And it changed his life. He was a missionary for many years before this ever happened. We're not talking about conversion. We're talking about the need to apply the gospel throughout ministry so that we have a ministry that thrives and a heart that doesn't grow cold but can actually fill up with joy and peace. And I'm telling you, you're not left to your own strength in that. The Spirit of God is in you. Fact, the same one who raised Jesus from the dead is supplying you with everything you need like a mighty rushing river. Finally, He goes before you. He goes before you. And when you look at your church and your ministry and you get fearful that your church isn't growing or these people are leaving, I just want to encourage you, you can trust the one who goes before you. Because the passage that we have, Romans 15, 13, says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that indwelling Spirit, you will continue to abound in hope. Hope is a future-oriented affection that He will continue to do what He has promised He would do. So you have the abounding work of the Holy Spirit continuing to work in your life, and He will complete what He has started. Pastor John Piper said this every single morning when he gets up recently. He has been praying this one prayer. He said, I'll get on my knees and I will say these words, I am not God. I'm not God. And he said, if I could just get people happy to say, I am not God, then my work in ministry would be done. Because in that, he's saying, but you are. And you've given your son, and I can trust you with what's coming to me today. I can trust you with it. As Tim regularly said, 
we can't guarantee the results. Well, who do we trust those results with? When I trust myself with the desired, with the outcome, I get anxious. I'm trying to play God. I'm trying to control it. And when I do life and ministry trying to look out here to control and to fix the outcomes, I get overwhelmed. I want to encourage you, be faithful in the small things and trust Him with the outcome. What are the small things? It's everything you've been hearing. Word, prayer, love is the agenda. Seek to make your soul happy in the Lord day in and day out. Love that person in front of them. Don't meet with them to keep them at your church. Meet with them to love them. I can't tell you how many times I've been so anxious trying to keep people because I don't want people to leave our church. But I can tell you this. If I'm just faithful, I can rest that a God has gone before me who is not only sovereign, but He is a sovereign Father. He cares for me. He loves me. And so I end with the verse. May the God of hope, hope because He sent His only Son to die in our place. He raised Jesus from the dead. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, continuing to believe so that by the power of the Holy Spirit who's in you, you will continue to abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would, by your great mercy, by your great mercy, give us hope in our discouraged days. Would you please, Father, give us the strength to keep believing that you are with us that you have gone before us and it is finished in Christ. You are in us and you will go before us. I pray that this would transform the ministries of these dear brothers and sisters in this room. And now as we go, Father, we know this is not about knowledge that we've learned. It's about sitting with you and trusting you to fill us up with your love. So I pray for the courage of these brothers and sisters to have their ministries characterized by stillness with Jesus, that they might find rest for their souls. And then I pray that you would fill them up to overflowing so that they would be so affected by the texts that they preach that they would preach effectively. Father, we ask that churches all over Bowling Green and beyond would treasure Christ above all because we know that we can only love because you first loved us. Give us joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.